0: Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. Morning. I'm going to, it's not my testimony, it's God's testimony, something that God's done in my life. I want to read, if y'all would, turn with me to the book of Haggai. It's a short book for y'all that are unfamiliar with it. It's after Zephaniah. I'm just going to read a, a portion of a chapter. And then I'll kind of give you the background because it kind of fits my story of what happened in my life. Zechariah chapter 2, and I'm going to be reading verse 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, who is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is it not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more. It is a little while, I will shake the heaven and the earth, the sea, and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, and they shall come to the desires of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. To give you all a little background of what's going on is rebellious Judah had been drug into captivity, and this is the third time they were in captivity, in Babylonian captivity. They remained in captivity for about 70 years, and through the inspiration of God, after the Babylonian captivity had fallen, a Persian king allowed them to go back and start building the temple again. So they, a portion of these people returned to Judah, and they started building uh, their lives instead of the temple. Twenty years had passed, and God had... Uh, some in Haggai to go speak to the people and say, why are these people not building my temple, But they're, why it lays in ruins, but they're building their own house? Look over in chapter 1. It says in verse 2, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, The people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house shall be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for yourselves to dwell in your own paneled houses in this temple, to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, Consider your way. This is what's pretty much going on is they're worried about their house. They're worried about their kingdom. They're not worried about God's, and they've been distracted. They set out to begin with to come back to their land and restart this temple. And remember, in the Old Testament, a temple symbolizes God's glory. That's where the presence of God was. But yet they came back and they were distracted, and all they could think about was these gorgeous paneled houses with this pretty woodwork and God had to remind them after 20 years, you haven't done anything, you haven't even started on the temple. So they start on the temple, and after they get the foundation laid, they had a little celebration, and uh, they, they got discouraged. You have some people, remember now they've been in captivity for about 70 years, and so some of the people that came out of captivity were old men now, ones that barely remembered Solomon Temple and all of its glory. And as they're building... These scoffers, these older people were sitting there saying, this temple is nothing like the glory of Solomon's temple. These, the, I remember the cedars of Lebanon that were way more prettier than this. The stones were chiseled differently. Nothing about this temple is going to be as glorious as Solomon's temple. And so the people were tempted to quit. That's my story. That's what, what I was going on, was going on with me because every time I had came to the Lord, it wasn't a false conversion, but I had came with All this ambition and all this strength and this desire to serve God, but after a little while, my kingdom became more important because I got distracted or I got discouraged because I looked at the lives of people around me who had a real godly life and they had the real spirit dwelling inside them and mine didn't look anything like that. I wanted to give up before anything began. I said, I'll I'll never be holy. I'll never have the presence of God walking in me. I'm looking at my life and it doesn't seem like God's done anything. I see what He's done a little bit, But maybe God's left me. Maybe, maybe He's not with me anymore. So I want to tell just a little bit, uh, about my testimony. And keep this in mind that as they started this construction, it was only about three months before they became discouraged. They worked about three months. They were ambitious. They had that celebration. They were on fire. They were ready to just do the will of the Lord and have His presence. And then three months later, they already give up. I did some, uh, research on statistics just on how people's priorities are when they make some type of oath, maybe not even to God, but just to themselves. And I found that people who make uh, New Year's resolution, and this is sad to say, but 8% of people who make New Year's resolution quit. They give up. Not only do they give up, they give up within the first three weeks. It doesn't matter what it is. it is. They say, I'm going to go to the gym, or I'm going to stop eating jelly donuts. Whatever the case be, they make this, New Year's resolution, and when three weeks they they just grow weary, they get discouraged, or their priorities become more important than whatever this resolution was that they had. That's 92% give up within three weeks. That's the kind of people we are. We give up. As soon as things seem a little hard, a little pressure gets put on us, or we're going to have to make some sacrifices, we say, "Eh, I'm going to go back to, to building my little pretty house, and I'll worry about the glory of God later on. 76% 76% of people who are in prison right now will return to prison. 76%. 67.8% of those people within the first three years that they're out, they'll return to prison. And most likely on the same charge or a like charge that they committed to begin with when they got out. 766 within five years returned to prison. So think about this. That's more than three-quarters of everybody that's sitting in a cell right now are going to be back in prison. I went to prison three different times. I spent two different times in parchment. But if you go to prison in the state of Mississippi, you'll meet what they call the helicopter man. And he is the uh, chaplain for Central Mississippi Correctional Facility in Pearl. And if you want free envelopes and a free Bible and some paper so you can, and he gives you one stamp and he tells you that stamp is to write somebody who has some money. That way they can put some money on your books. Use it wisely. But all this comes out of his own pocket because uh, he feels like the Lord has told him to do that, and he's been doing this for many, many years. But he gives a speech about every three weeks for all the newcomers that come through the facility, and it lasts about three hours, and uh, pretty much summed up of the whole story is that almost 80% of you are coming back. And he and he said it like this. There was four tables in there, and at the time there was hundred, about 100 people in there. He said, three of these tables are coming back to prison. One of you is not. I'm looking around like, which table? I want to be on the table that's not coming back. But he said that. He said that most of you will come back sadly, and that's just statistically. It's nothing that I'm trying to put on you or confess over you. It's just, and he gives this long reason of why people return. They go back to the same old thing, and, and it's pretty much summed up in that, that we go back to what's familiar, even if it's, painful because there's some type of comfort in familiarity. I don't know what it is, and, and I experienced that in my own life, that change is scary, and it's unknown, but I knew that I could always run back to my drug addiction, and, and where it wouldn't solve my problems, I knew it could numb my problems for a little while. And even in my pain and my depression, it was comfortable. And I know this sounds sick, but it, there was some type of comfort in it because I was used to it. I wasn't used to anything else, and when things were going good, I literally felt like Satan was right around the corner just waiting to screw it up. I had the most negative outlook on life that you can possibly imagine. If something could go wrong, I knew it was going to go wrong, it was going to go in my life. If there was a 1% chance that anything could happen, it was going to happen. It was going to happen to me. Even my own dad told me that, and it was like reaffirming this belief that I had this curse on my life. He said, it's like a rain cloud follows you around. You've got the worst luck of anybody I've ever seen in my life. And I, I thought that was just me. That actually was happening. Everything could possibly go wrong was going wrong. I read this quote the other day. There's a philosopher, he's still alive today, he's an older guy. He writes a lot of books and poems. And this is what he said. He said, discouragement tricks you into mentally or emotionally dwelling in the very place you want to leave. His name's Guy family. And that makes so much sense because this discouragement has a purpose. It's 100% an attack from Satan, and it's to get you to stay right there where you are in your sin and not go towards God. That's what it does, and that's what it did with me. Uh Just to give you a little background, I didn't grow up in church. My dad didn't believe in God, and uh until the time I was about 21, I didn't know who Moses was. I'd never heard any character of the Bible. Never went to a, a church with a friend or anything. My parents didn't really like the ideas of going to church because my mom grew up in a Catholic church and stopped going after her and my dad got married, and his parents were... I don't know if they were wives growing up, but they were Southern Baptists, and they drove my mom and I think we were little and drove us. I don't remember it to a Southern Baptist. Uh, it was a uh, not a convention, but a revival. And can you imagine if you know anything about a Catholic church, and then you picture a Southern Baptist revival? My mom ran out of there so fast when they started praising God. They said her feet didn't hit the ground. We never were allowed to go anywhere near a church like that anyway, because she believed that the only church was the Catholic church. So needless to say, I I never went to church again, and by the time I was 16, I was doing drugs, I was smoking weed, and I had a best friend who I'd grown up with, and he had met this girl who was a Christian, and she drug him to Bible camp. Me and him had hung out every day, we had fun. There was no conviction in what we did, but here he comes back from Bible camp, and while we're smoking weed, he wants to bring up Jesus. It was like the ultimate buzz kill. Was like, man, why are you always bringing up Jesus? Mate? I started feeling bad because I knew that what we were doing wasn't right. You know, morality tells you that. And I knew that this Jesus fellow he was talking about it probably didn't like what we were doing, so every time he'd bring up Jesus, I felt this conviction. And he'd always say, man, there's something better, bro, I can't explain what, the, what happened to me at that camp and the joy that I have, man, and I just want that back while he was still doing that. And then, Today, he he is a a Christian. He's a godly man. He doesn't do any drugs, but I he sobered up not long after that, and I got worse off. Um, I became an opiate addict, taking uh, pain pills for y'all who don't know what opiates are, and then that led into an IV addiction where I was shooting, using syringes, and that's the only way that I would do the drug because it just hit me harder that way. Uh, I end up becoming a heroin addict. I was one of the first people ever in the methadone clinic. When this methadone clinic came to Jackson, I was a, one of the first ones through the door. I was on that clinic three different times, sometimes for a couple years at a time, and it was the most, it's the stupidest and most horrible thing that they've ever came out with. Uh, so here I am at 19 years old. I'm a junkie, and I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I have no career choice. I have no ambition. There's nothing I want to do. I don't have a relationship with Jesus, although he had talked to me a lot about Jesus, and I found myself at times praying God would take away what I was doing because I knew it wasn't right, and I knew I wasn't happy. I just didn't understand I could have a relationship with this guy. I ended up in juvenile detention center a couple times. Uh, I got expelled from school, high school, before I turned 18. I was just a problem child. And once I became a junkie, I... uh, I ended up going to eight different rehabs. The first one didn't work, and I tried another one. That one didn't work, tried another one. Eight rehabs later, I'm still in the same condition. I'd get out, and I'd do good for about a week or so, and I'd be right back to it to the point where I was so depressed that I really wanted to die, and I attempted suicide a couple of times. I slipped my wrist. I tried taking over 100 sleeping pills. I'd wake up in the hospital, and there were other attempts, but they were more cry for help i didn't I was scared to die, but I just I was reaching out and I didn't know what I was reaching out for I didn't understand that what was going on in my life was that these pills and these drugs that I had begun to use to begin with was a uh a desire for something that was missing, and I didn't know what that that was that was missing. I had a huge void and emptiness in my heart, and it was a god shaped hole, and God's a big God, and I was trying to fill it with all this garbage of the world, and it wasn't doing anything but making me more more empty so I went in the military, and i trying to get away from drugs, and that didn't help. I ended up getting trouble in the military and uh, became, I am now a federally convicted inmate. Uh, uh, Got court-martialed and sent to jail, and luckily I didn't get a dishonorable discharge. I got another type of discharge, but I wasn't, by the grace of God. So when I came home, I was way worse off than when I went in. I was really in a state of depression to the point where I had, Started stealing from everybody. Everybody had shut me out of their life. I had burned all my bridges with my family. I ended up sleeping in hotels, and the rest of the time I was sleeping in abandoned houses. And it got to a point where for two years straight, I walked the streets of fortification and panhandling at every little gas station and store, constantly going to jail for panhandling, constantly going to jail for trespassing, constantly going to jail for paraphernalia, uh, minor possession charges, in and out. I'd go in jail. I'd come back out in the same state I was. And I got so angry at God after a while because I had prayed to God, this God that I didn't know, for him to take away this pain that I was feeling, this humility, this depression, this anger. I was angry at the world. Nobody wanted to be around me. I was a bitter person. And uh, he didn't do anything. He didn't answer my prayers, or at least I didn't feel like it. Every time I cried out to him, nothing happened. I thought something was supposed to happen. And I went for one time, I got so mad that I... I said I wasn't going to cry out to God for a year because I felt like every time I had cried out to God, I ended up in jail. And I thought God had something to do with that. So I said, I'm not I'm not praying to you anymore, God. And I actually stayed out of jail for probably about a year and a half, which was like the longest stretch of uh, not being incarcerated that I had ever had, or at least that I remembered. And so I said, I knew that was God. God's the one that's locking me up. And in a way, you can argue with that, but it was because... God knew exactly what it was going to take for me to get sober, and I would pull every little string and pull every little stunt to get out of jail every time. I believe the devil can kind of get you out of jail sometimes. He'll maneuver things and work things out where you can hit the street again and became uh, utterly hopeless, and that's the state that he wanted me in. He He didn't want me locked up. The devil wanted me out on the street using. He was trying to take my life from me. So finally, I remember getting so bad off as a heroin addict that I... I saw people all around me ODing and dying, and it kind of put a little fear in me. Even though I wished for death at one time, it scared me because I knew that I wasn't right with God. And then if I died and this God was real, then I knew where I was going. And so I said a little prayer, the first prayer I prayed in a year and a half. And it was three days later, I'm on the news for some crimes I had committed. And so I'm on the run, and I didn't get very far. You want to talk about a a fugitive on a run, on the run like he, I made it to Vicksburg. This is as far as I made it. Before I was arrested. Um, I found myself sitting in a cell. And I was what they call combative when I got in there trying to fight the cops. And so they had hog tied me with my arms behind my legs and threw me in a cop car. And uh, they thought I was crazy. I ended up going to the hospital and they lost my clothes at the hospital. By the time I made it back to the jail, I just had a hospital gown on. And they ripped that off me. So now I'm laying on this cell floor naked and I'm freezing. They turn the air all the way down. So I'm trying to cover myself with toilet paper. And I remember getting so angry and and bitter with God and just hitting the floor. And I was like, why have every time I've tried to pray to you, you've done nothing in my life. And I'm tired of living like this. And I meant it. I was so tired. And I remember, I remember God just telling me you're, uh, you give up too easy. Every time that I've ever done a work in your life, you just give up and you walk away, or you get distracted. you just constantly discouraged. I was trying to do a work in you to begin with. And I. And when I heard this prayer, this thought came in my head. I had been to jail, and I counted, and most of these are, are misdemeanors. Some of them are felonies, but 64 times. that I, That's what my rap sheet said. 64 times, and I remember the devil just telling me. This was always in my conscience. You've been to jail 64 times, you're going to be to jail 64 times. I've gotten you 64 times. I'll get you another 64 times. I remember praying on that floor, so angry and so hurt. And this prayer was a little bit different, or actually it was a lot different than any prayer I've ever prayed. I actually prayed, every other time I prayed for God, please get me out of jail and I'll do better. Please give me some help, or please help me get this, or help me do that, or please make this pain go away, or whatever the case be, it was always with my comfort and my well-being, or so I thought, in mind. But this time I prayed God, said, please don't let me out of this jail, Phil, because... I had taken things from people. Um, I had cost people money. I've done a lot of things to hurt people. and I don't want to hurt people anymore, and I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to leave this jail cell the same way that I came in. And I meant that with all my heart, and I said, if I have to do 20 years or 30 years, so be it. I don't want to get out the same way that I came in. Uh, longest sobriety date I've ever had previous to that point was 23 days since I was 16 years old. I had 23 days sober. was the longest stretch I ever had. Besides a few times that I've been in jail a little bit longer and I couldn't get to it. But as far as on my own where I could get to drug, uh, longest I've ever made it on my own was 23 days. So I asked myself, what is my problem? Why do I keep returning to the same thing every time? What is wrong with me? And that's when this scripture that I found later came to me, or this chapter, where these people had came back, they had gotten out of captivity, and some people say your captivity is in jail. My captivity wasn't in jail. My captivity was on the street. My release from captivity was in jail when I found Jesus on that cold floor naked. That's when my, my uh, release was. And uh, he kept telling me that it's it's discouragement and distraction. Every time you get out, you run back. You, you just grow weary. You don't stand firm long enough. You don't give me time to do anything in your life. You keep running back to familiars, almost like you're scared of what's going to happen. And I was and I don't understand that. I can't even explain to you why I would not want something better in my life. There was something scary about change. The helicopter man, whenever I was in prison, said this. It's a profound statement. He said the only way that anything is ever going to be any different is when you realize or come to the conclusion that the pain or, of remaining the same has to be far greater than the pain of change. In other words, he's saying, you're going to hurt either way. You're going to hurt for a little while. You're going to have to give this world up and hurt now, or you're going to keep on dragging yourself through the mud, and you're going to continue to hurt. So that's what I wanted, and I, I didn't want to be that statistic anymore. Like he said, 85% of you, or or what it was, 79% of you coming back, and I said it wasn't me all three times, and here I am again, and I wanted to make sure that I would never come back, and I cried out to God. I constantly, every day, I cried out to God. I, um, uh, I wanted to give up. I found this from Billy Graham yesterday. He said, because here I am sitting in jail, and I prayed to stay in jail, and I end up in Hines County in this dark, depressing cell. And I was scared because I was the only white guy in there, and I wasn't affiliated, and there's no light in my cell. I didn't know what was going to happen. I've been in jail, and I've been in these circumstances before, but... I thought I was going to have to fight for my life in there. And and I cried out to God, and uh, I, I, I found this statement anyway. It says, the Christian life is not a constant high. I have to go to God in prayer with tears in my eyes and say, oh God, forgive me and help me. See, one thing I wasn't realizing that even though I was saved, it doesn't mean that everything was going to go hunky-dory, that there were going to be some tough times in my life, and that I had to endure in those tough times for God to ever get to something good that God was going to give them. Even though those people of Judah were discouraged and they didn't want to finish the temple, they did endure by the inspiration of God. And in that same temple, it was the temple that Jesus walked through later on. This was my average, my average day while I was in the cell, in this dark cell, is that because there was no light in the cell... I would lay by the door and catch the little light coming in every morning, just so I can read my Bible for a little while. And for a couple months, I was so depressed I didn't want to. I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to get out of my rack. I didn't want to leave my rack. <clears throat> and I remember a previous time I'd been to prison because I was trying to figure out how I was going to do this time. And I thought I was going to do a lot. There was. I don't know if y'all remember. There's a guy named Luke Woodham who shot up Pearl High School in 1997. He was a kid. And uh, he was in a, a satanic cult. He came to the jail and just started shooting up the place. It was he kind of started the school shootings because before Columbine or any other shooting, he was the first one, and he was just a kid. Well, my second time in prison, I got in a fight. I was trying to walk with the Lord, and it because of this fight that was not my fault. I ended up in a, a separate building, and they took me out of this long-term drug and alcohol program that I was supposed to be in. And it was going to cost me nine more months in prison, and I was angry, and I was just bitter. And I, and I came on his own with Luke Woodham. Luke Woodham had already been locked up almost 20 years at the time, I think. And uh, he gave me his testimony. The day after this school shooting happened, he cried out to God, and he got saved. He's now a, a chaplain assistant for the Camp of Parchment, and he spends his days thinking about others. He spends his days thinking preaching the gospel and doing whatever he can to help people out. And he had more joy, if that makes any sense, he had more peace than anybody I've ever met. On his time sheet, it's a sheet that shows how much time you got. He had exits. He was never getting out. He would never get to experience some of the the good things like having children or getting married or getting to watch them open presents or going fishing or all these little things that we take for granted, he'll never get to do them again. He'd been in parchment for 20 years and he'll die in parchment. But yet he had something I didn't have. And I was groaning and griping about nine little months that I had to do, and you would think he'd say, man, i got the rest of my life in here. I'll die on this one. He didn't say anything like that. He listened to me, encouraged me, he preached to me, he loved on me, he taught me something. And I remembered him when I was in that dark cell, Said, if he can have peace, and I met a couple people like that who had been through seminary, in prison, and that they were spending their days thinking about other people that were maybe hurting more than them, even though their situation was worse. He had something that I wanted, and that, that something was peace. So that inspiration from that caused me to really get to work, really get inspired by God. So I would read every day. I'd study. I'd say, well, since I don't have a job in here, I'll read my Bible eight hours a day. And that's what I did. I read my Bible eight hours a day. I'd pass out scriptures to people under a door, and you'd think people as hard as that in, in jail, they'd be like, I don't want that. Nobody once ever told me they didn't want that scripture. and every, They either didn't read it, or they said, Appreciate it, man. I needed that. So the only time I felt comfort is when I was doing the Lord's work when I was in there, and I said that I was going to do it uh, the whole time. And, I, and the scripture, and y'all don't have to flip here, that I came across, I was wondering how God was going to get me through this time or if he was going to deliver me from this. And even if he didn't deliver me, how was I going to endure? And he gave me Zechariah 4, 6, same scripture that he gave Zerubbabel in the same story, he said, not by my might, nor by my power, but by my spirit. What was he saying? Saying that you've tried to do it, every time you've gotten out, you tried to do it on your own, you left me. You tried to do it by your own might, your own power, and I'm trying to do it in your spirit. And we've been studying through Isaiah in seminary school, and uh, almost half the book of Isaiah is what they call um, lessons in trust where God was bringing these people through multiple things to teach them the trust. And I think that's what God was trying to teach me while I was in there. I had to learn there was nobody that I could cry out to. I got my indictment papers, and it said that I had two burglary charges under an habitual, which if anybody knows what that means, it means I was facing life without parole, and they had all the evidence they needed. And the best I could hope for was that they dropped the habitual to the little habitual, and I got 50 mandatory years, which would leave me 80-something years to get out. And if I was even luckier and this judge just had a big heart or God moved on his heart, maybe he would drop the habitual and just give me the 50 years, and I'd have to serve half of that. So it would be 25 years. So that would be the miracle if I got a miracle from God is I would only have to serve 25 years in prison. So I, I got in my head, I may have to serve. But I I knew the goodness of God. And the Bible says he is a rewarder of those who seek him diligently. And I was seeking God with everything that I had. I didn't care what people thought. I was on my knees. I was on my face. I spent hours a day in prayer. I spent hours a day in reading. And I said, God, please show me your goodness. And if not, if I have to stay here because of what the crimes I committed, please give me peace and give me comfort. I remember Matt came up there one day and I asked him to pray for me. He said, He said, what what's going to happen if you do get a lot of time? And I was like, what do you mean? He said, are you still going to? Be holding these Bible studies and passing out these scriptures, are you still going to be obedient to the Lord? And I had to sit there and think about it. And I I remember Peter when Jesus had some hard sayings and a lot of his followers had left, and he looked at Peter and he said, "You want to leave too?" And Peter said, "To where? Where would we go? To whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life." I remember that. Where would I go? How miserable would I be even if I do serve time? And and it got me thinking. If they give me this 50 years, am I going to continue to serve God? Am I just doing this so I can hopefully get time off? That maybe God will see. But then I remember that God sees heart, but my heart was in it. I really wanted to change. I wanted what God had for me. And uh, so I cried out. Three and a half years later, sitting here doing this, faithfully every day, holding 7 o'clock Bible studies. Some of the inmates would come. Sometimes there was a lot of them. Sometimes it wasn't a little... But I knew I was going to be faithful, and even if I got time, I would continue to be faithful in prison. That's what Matt told me to do. But three and a half years later, my court date had been put off so many times I had watched people come and go, come and go, come and go, come and go. And I remember getting angry. I was just like the Jews. I was ready to quit because I couldn't see God at work. Just like when they started to build this temple and they had these scoffers. I had the same scoffer in my ear, the devil saying that, You're going to get a bunch of time. God's not going to do anything with you. Look at how people keep coming and going, and you're not going anywhere. And literally everybody who had the same charge, even in a lesser, not under habitual was getting 30 years. Everybody was getting 30 years. And the judge that I had came on the news, and I remember seeing it and getting so discouraged when I was locked up. He told the people on the news, he said, if any inmate comes in front of my courtroom, in front of my podium, and he has an habitual charge. I'm not dropping a vigil. He's getting sentenced under a vigil. He sat there and made that that promise that you will get that maximum amount of time of whatever your sentence carries and I'm not going down. You've done been a, That's what we call the three strikes you're outlaw. And I had three and four sitting in front of me right there. Um, Three and a half years later, I'm still sitting there wondering what's going to happen. This judge steps down. And I got so angry wondering why I'm, I'm still sitting here and I'm not getting out. This judge steps down, he runs for Mississippi Court of Appeals, and a new judge takes the bench. Two and a half months later. Two and a half months a year two, two months later, my lawyer comes and the DA had finally faxed him a plea offer for my Senate. He said, This is your plea offer. And I'm thinking, 20 years. Okay, I'm bracing myself. And I looked at the court paper and it said, <clears throat> no prison time, drug court, non-adjudicated. And anybody don't know what that means to me? Mean. <clears throat> it means it's not going to count against me. It's going to be dismissed. And I froze, wondering, is this some sick joke? Are you sure? And I looked, and I said, is that my name on the paper? Are you sure that's my mine? See, I'm supposed to have this faith in God now. I've been walking strong with God for three and a half years, but here comes the promise. Here comes God's blessing. And I don't even believe it. I can't believe it. I'm wondering, why? And I remember, I feel like David, like, who am I, God, that you were mindful of me? Why? And I knew I deserved whatever I was going to get. And I was ready to serve God in prison. Now, even though I said, please don't make me do it, Lord. I'd rather serve you out of here than I would in prison, but I'll be faithful no matter where I am. And here the sentence was, I'm going to tell you how good God is. I've been out. I haven't been out that long, but I have no desire for drugs. I haven't done any drugs. I have no desire for cigarettes or any other tobacco. I haven't had any of that in four years. I have a good job with benefits. Uh, Lord has blessed me with my family back. He's blessed me with this church family. He's blessed me with a chance to go to seminary. He's uh, gave me my health back. And I have peace now. I have love. I have joy. And I care more about people. And I'm not so stuck in my own selfish ways. I just want... Tell y'all how good God is, man. That if you remain faithful to Him, it's amazing what God can do. God wants to bless you in your life and even though you've done some things in your life that may not be pleasant, you feel like God won't forgive you. If God can forgive me, He can forgive you. I have the uh, praise team come forward and the prayer team. You know, it's funny how the only time that we'll ever find hope is a lot of times is when we find ourselves utterly hopeless. And I know this sounds weird, but if I wouldn't have never had that hurdle in front of me, if I would have never been facing that amount of time, I would have never found God, and I would have died in my sins, and I would have been in hell. But thank God He allowed that. Thank God that He moved on me to pray that prayer, and thank God that He opened the doors up for me to go to prison. So I want to pray right now for you, Day Spring, as uh. As we play a song, maybe you're like these Jews who started construction at one time, like I was, so many times. And after a while, you just get discouraged. You can't see how God's working in your life. Maybe you say, "Well, I walked with the Lord a long time ago, but now I've kind of got sidetracked, and I'm thinking about I'm thinking about my kingdom instead of God's kingdom." I'm more worried about my house and my family and my career, and uh, Lord, I just want to pray. I pray that you just come down and let us pray for you, Lord. If there's anybody in here who has had a strong relationship with you at one time and then walked away, or they've gotten sidetracked, or Lord, they they have something that you had put on their heart to do, they just got discouraged. They couldn't see how you were working. I want to pray for them, Lord. Lord, I want to pray this congregation, Lord. I thank you that it's the church that reached out to me when whenever I was locked up, Lord, because your word says that when we're in prison you visit us, Lord. So this is a people who reflect your image, Lord, for your glory, Lord. And I just pray that you would bless them as they go out today, Lord. we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus. Bless yes. you, Day Spring. Day Spring, we're dismissed.